Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the SRA podcast. We return for another week of varying stories of varying quality. Uh, joining us, as always, at this point is Faye, our official, unofficial co-host and apparently now, uh, I forget the term that was used in the committee, uh, was it public relations commissar? Um, well, as a libcom, I sort of disagree with the commissar part, but I guess that's my job now. Glad to be back on, Alex, and uh, I hope uh, uh, my audio sounds a little bit better for the people listening. I've upgraded my microphone and gotten a pop filter and other things like that, so hopefully we should have a bit better audio quality going forward. Well, we'll jump right into the first story of the night, which is... uh. Maybe not something to dwell too long on, because honestly, these things are a dime a dozen nowadays, I think. But uh, it is a story about the Republican Party abandoning its principles. Apparently, uh, folks folks feel like the Republicans are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. That in this age of Trump and stuff, that they're just... Uh, They've just abandoned all their all their principles, and this this article uses words like responsibility, stoicism, self control, frugality, fidelity, decorum, honor, character, independence, and integrity. Apparently, these were all traits that the Republican Party used to hold until uh, until Mr. Trump came along and just ruined the whole party. But uh, I think. I think we can have a pretty good discussion about how that probably was never the case. At least it hasn't been the case for a long, long time. It hasn't been the case during my lifetime. The earliest I can remember on Fox News was, you know, screeching about Democrats for not supporting President Bush. And and uh, I remember a little bit of the Clinton scandal. Ugh. Just from the very beginning, when have the Republicans ever been stoic or frugal or had decorum? It's, it's not, that doesn't describe who the Republicans are. That just describes the window dressing they like to put on. Yeah, for the party of financial responsibility and things of this nature, uh, it's, they, they sure aren't showing their stripes very well, if that's how they're supposed to be. And, I decorum, honor, character. Uh, I, I I disagree on these terms on the basis that I it's it's exactly that it's window dressing, and more than that, I found that these terms often are used to shame people in politics. That that you know the the common masses don't have any of this, as they say, and so but but these educated elite uh, politicians do, and it, it's a way of trying to paint the opponents their opponents in a poor light that uh, to say that they're the civilized uh, respectable statesmen when i mean it's tone policing and gaslighting and it's used to shut down the conversation anyone anytime someone gets upset about a social justice issue they could just say oh you need to approach this you know you need to have better self-control you need to not get so emotional 
it's just used to it's just used to shut down honest conversation about things that actually affect people's lives. You're not allowed to get emotional over anything unless you're crying over a bald eagle rescuing a baby wrapped in an American flag. If you know if black people suffering uh, from poverty and and violence in cities or from discrimination, uh, you stop being so stop being so emotional. It's it's disgusting. It is. It absolutely is. And I mean, this is obviously, I mean, these are lifetime long politicians. These guys up in Congress have been there for a very long time. And it's not like their behavior has changed overnight since Trump got into office. It's still a lot of the same faces and the same seats. And uh, especially looking at this stuff with Brett Kavanaugh, I mean, the, the level of immaturity on display from all fronts of of this that not only Kavanaugh himself just losing it on the stand but then also the, the senators interviewing him that are supposed to be really giving him real hard questions or just uh, the amount of immaturity on display it's 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 an all an illusion and for to have think pieces talking about this where all don't don't we wish it was the good old days when you know republicans and democrats sat down with each other and brokered deals and it it's only the good old days for um certain class of people i've heard uh an analogy made that uh democrats think about the west wing the same way that republicans think about the 1950s it's this mythical you know pastime that they just oh we just wish we could go back to things where you know back when things were great when things were done properly and there wasn't all this animus it's no this isn't the west wing this isn't that isn't the way politics work yeah i think that this this myth of civilized discourse and politics is is just uh, it's a myth that to say that politics has ever been civilized i mean it 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 hasn't been since the foundation of the country that since since the very first days people were thrown insults at each other so to to try to say that trump is some brand new thing is to try to hide the fact that these things have been going on for a while it's not let's not mask the point that it's not that trump doesn't represent something new it is true that trump is a representative of a new order where people don't try to dress themselves up in this that trump makes no claims about being civilized or you know having good decorum or character or whatever he very much embraces the fact that he is not any of those things that he embraces the fact that he says it like it is and there's a new wave of people coming around that say it like it is and uh there is there is this thing that we aren't doing the window dressing anymore and that's kind of concerning on multiple levels uh, at the same time uh, let us not pretend that things have really changed that much that again the same people are in power the same people making decisions that we've we've got a new head of state who can push these conversations in particular ways but congress is still going along with so much of this i mean nobody's forcing senator hatch to go and vote yes on somebody like kavanaugh but uh, nonetheless here we are 
And don't forget that while complaining about Trump and what an awful president he is and how dangerous and unstable he is, House Democrats voted almost unanimously in a higher percentage than the Republicans did to give an unprecedented, enormous uh, funding increase to the military uh, for this year, just for next year, just an enormous um, sum of money. And, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that there's no real fundamental disagreement on the underlying politics. It's just a disagreement in how people present themselves while doing this sort of politics. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that kind of goes into this next topic of uh, we have received an international court ruling that the, the Hague, we have received a ruling from the Hague that uh, basically, our our sanctions against Iran are not good. Uh, it, they have been ruled inhumane that we are denying humanitarian supplies or having the effect of denying humanitarian supplies to Iran via our sanctions. We've imposed severe restrictions on their civilian airspace, so it, it makes flights uh, in Iran and out of Iran very difficult to operate due to these restrictions. Um, we're not going to abide by it. On multiple occasions in the past, America and Iran have not abided by rulings from the international court, um, which, you know, that, that's a real uh, honorable thing to do, to not obey court rulings from a body that America was instrumental in establishing to, you know, maintain the world decorum. But uh, multiple presidents before Trump have ignored it uh, on both sides of the aisle. So I don't know where the think piece about that is as to why we are being so flippant about things like this. But the United States likes to wrap itself in the uh, aura of supporting international law, but uh, we almost never follow it. Almost we break we break international law almost every day, and. Uh, and it's interesting that the United States has a habit of signing treaties, but then not ratifying them, because the president has the ability to sign a treaty, but then if it doesn't get ratified by Congress, it isn't legally binding. So we get the publicity benefit, the PR benefit of signing a uh, of signing, you know, a, a nuclear treaty or a, you know, signing an international um, international. Uh, uh, treaty, environmental treaty, or something like that, but then we never ratify it, and we never follow through, and nobody can do anything about it because it's the United States. So fuck you. Yeah, that's that's one of those things that I the ability to enforce rulings, unfortunately, comes down to well, your ability to go in and impose your own sanctions against a individual or government if they don't abide by the ruling and uh america apparently actually has a law that's been talked about recently that since uh the international courts are looking at uh america's involvement in the iraq war and things that transpired during that um there's been more talk about potentially issuing international warrants for the arrest of individuals in these cases and there's actually a law on the books that says we can literally invade the hague if they take an american citizen into custody and so that's that's just real encouraging that uh yeah we'll totally abide 
by your decisions, but here's a law that we have on the books that says we can literally use military force to get somebody you take into custody back. Yeah, international law is basically toothless and only really applies if the uh, if one country has the military force to impose it against another. But uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not... It, it basically almost doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, speaking of reprimands, though, our, our favorite other guest on the show, Elon Musk, makes a triumphant return <laughs> with this week's news that uh, he he got sued by the SEC. So, as it turns out, uh, making a weed joke and manipulating the markets with it to impress your girlfriend, not not looked favorably upon so we'll have to make a note of that but don't do that darn there goes my weekend so yes uh mr musk he he reached a settlement with the sec so that you know he doesn't get huge massive fines levied against him and potentially his entire career slept up from underneath him for a stunt such as this so the settlement says he has to step down as chairman for three years. Can't be chairman of Tesla for three years. Uh, he remains the CEO, though. He will still be the CEO of Tesla and basically will continue in his role as expected. It's nine. Chairman of the board is it's a powerful position, but at the same time, uh, he's still just as influential as he ever was in the company so he's still doing the day-to-day -day operations of the company he's still overseeing production and all of the major officers of the company you know it's just he isn't also um he isn't also negotiating necessarily with the other investors the way he was as chairman and he doesn't have the ability to replace officers at his own will as chairman uh, which it, he, I don't believe the chairman of the board can replace people on their own, but certainly their recommendation carries a lot of weight when they're talking to other members of the board uh, to do something like that. Indeed. So we'll see where Musk's journey takes him next. You know, it's probably about time for him to sell his shares, move on to some new brand new adventure to revolutionize maybe. I don't know what's left for Musk to go into. You know, he did PayPal, so he figured out how to send people money over the internet. And now he's figuring out electric cars. And uh, I don't know what he's going to try to introduce the Musk charm to next. Uh, maybe maybe he'll go into the weed business. You know, the weed business is, is live and booming as states legalize marijuana. So maybe... Maybe Musk will take his signature entrepreneurship. We'll go ahead and call it. We'll he'll use. He'll invent a. He'll invent a drone that'll fly a joint directly to your lips. <laughs> Actually, you know that that sounds like a perfect business venture for us. I I am one hundred percent in I'm support of this. I we we need to figure out a good name for it though. Uh, sky high. Sky high. Sky high could work. Yeah. Well, let's go sky high. That would be that. That's the next thing, guys. I, I think this is. I think this is it. I'm gonna close down the podcast, and we're going to make this a thing. We're going to be a Silicon Valley startup, and we're going to get bought out by some other company, and we'll we'll live we'll, at large. We'll go, we'll go on Shark Tank. That's exactly we'll, what we'll do. Uh, and we'll our display will just be a guillotine. <laughs>
Now there's an idea. Unmanned guillotine drones. I see a future in that. Uh, I do too. Well, let's not be too bogged down in our capitalist ventures. And let's, let's turn our eyes right to a recent article that I guess the Jesuits recently put out about democratic socialism and Catholicism. So this was an article that I saw come across my feed recently. Let me pull it up here real fast. I have this article pulled up in front of me. It is by Brianna Jacobs, and it is for the Jesuit Review, and it is discussing how democratic socialism is compatible with Catholic social teachings. Um, it, it talks a bit about folks like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and other leading figures in the DSA and movements around it. Basically, it's it's just talking a bit about where uh, it's just talking a bit about how the the history of Catholicism makes it feasible for democratic socialism to be an accepted philosophy. Of course, uh, liberation uh, theology is alive and well. Um, and a- as a Christian socialist, I completely agree that there is plenty within biblical teachings to advocate and promote the socialist leftist system um it's fascinating to me though to see this in a publication such as this because i do feel like this is kind of the start of something in america where the american religious community has kind of been forced to look at itself in the mirror with an individual like donald trump who doesn't dress himself up in the same cultural trappings as another candidate might uh we've we've traditionally seen both republicans and democrats dress themselves up in very evangelical clothes but uh have always managed to kind of keep their actual values at an arm's length when discussing these things and just kind of you know go with the flow and you know put on a good show but don't actually show biblical basis or what are their beliefs and now we have somebody like trump who forces the community the religious community here in america to look at itself and say who are we supporting and i i do think this might be a moment where uh, many religious groups could actually be turning to something uh closer to leftism i hope so but from the indications I've seen, uh, my own mother is a conservative Catholic, Irish Catholic, and um, I, I've noticed a trend where there are people who will claim to be Catholic or who will claim to be of a, you know, uh, mainstream Protestant denomination. But culturally, a lot of these people are much closer to evangelical and evangelicalism. Um, my own mother, uh, over disagreements with Pope Francis, has actually become a non-denominational Protestant uh, and and largely abandoned sections of her Catholic faith. Uh, she's currently heterodox from anything else, but you know it's sort of um, it's sort of telling that some people, when faced with the choice between their uh, cultural values and what they believe to be the word of God, many will stick with their cultural values, including uh, supporting the Republican Party, which is as much a cultural cultural value as football or beer for some people. Yeah, I do think that when people have to confront this question, just as people have to confront the question of economics, that uh, 
when they see the failures of the system that we have today under capitalism, there is uh, there are different options. You can take a socialist route to it to solve this economic crisis, or you can take a reactionary route to it. And I think in just the same way, when folks have to face what their religious institutions have been promoting for all this time, I think that uh, people can either realize that the these these teachings and these uh, actions from these religious institutions are incompatible with basic human decency or they can reject it whole right and just cling to their their own cultural trappings and uh, shape their beliefs around that rather than you know, go going along with what is being shown as are they changing their values to fit their religion or are they changing their religion to fit their values exactly and i think it is worth noting as well that uh, since this does come up in leftist circles every now and then of the place of religion in these things uh, well we can consider uh, states like the soviet union where they had a very strict atheistic doctrine put into place at the state level uh, just just like all things there are many different implementations of leftism across the world and especially in south america which simply does not get the credit it deserves from i feel really anyone uh, be it on the conservative right-wing side which will constantly seek to disparage south american countries as just you know backwards nations or but even leftists who will rail and rail about the the actions of imperialists in the region. And certainly South America has been uh, very much affected by imperialism and has been repeatedly repressed in its political activities. But much of the organizing work in South America, in South American leftist thought, did come with great help from the church, from various religious groups, that there was a very strong presence of liberation theology in South America and continues to this day. And I, I don't, I feel like this isn't given enough credit when discussing these things because for one reason or the other, people don't want to talk about it, even though plenty of priests and bishops and what have you were very influential and getting workers' rights in South America and promoting the plight of the workers. Although it's worth noting that the larger church structure has often been hostile to liberation theology, particularly in Latin America, where uh, a number of bishops and even, I believe, an archbishop in Brazil were defrocked uh, for, um, for beliefs and activism that the Vatican considered just unacceptable and not in line with the Catholic Church's mission. So it hasn't always been as well received. Uh, I, I believe in particular Pope uh, John Paul II was very hostile to it, and uh, Pope Ratzinger as well. Um, has there been any sort of change in that? Uh, as far as I'm aware, yes, because Pope Francis has definitely relaxed these these things at the at the level of the Vatican that many in the Vatican were concerned because he he has had an activist history in Argentina with kind of a mixed history on that note but he he does have a much better opinion of these things than say somebody like Pope John Paul II um, 
he has been more allowing of it. Uh, obviously, his teachings as well have been much more in line with what we'd consider to be progressive politics. Um, he's he's expressed a lot more, not necessarily leftist ideals, but certainly not the same conservative ideals of his predecessors. Uh, I mean, of course, he is still the Pope. It's he's there's you're not going to get too much radical from him, but. And I feel like this is also a bigger topic of, you know, these huge religious institutions and the Catholic Church may be the biggest of them all that just due to its history and how cemented it has been in Western culture for over a thousand years at this point. Um, I think I think that also goes to show that when you have an institution like it where, you know, you're everyone from the bottom up is selected from the top down with maybe the exception of the Pope, which is selected by a council at the Vatican. But even that uh, priests are selected by the Bishop. The bishops are selected by the archbishops. The archbishops are selected by the Pope and of Vatican council and the Vatican council selects the Pope. And many of these positions are lifelong positions. Uh, it's a very slow, very institutionalized system, and so that can definitely hamper these things. Any sort of theological change, it's it's very difficult to progress through this system. Nonetheless, uh, I do think that in South America, they've had a really good history, especially with the Jesuits, who are traditionally a more left-leaning group within the church. I think this is kind of a topic that maybe deserves its own dedicated episode one day of discussing uh, politics in the region. Yes, I'd definitely like to talk about the role of liberation theology in Latin America. Um, Hopefully we can do something on that soon. I think that there's a lot of material there. Maybe we could do one of our special Patreon episodes on that. Yeah, I think that would be a good idea. So we'll we'll transition out of that and go to some more local news um, back here and at home in America that uh, the DSA has been in the news. Uh, not good news, unfortunately. So for those who have not heard, a DSA Louisville chapter was at a diner having a meeting, and I guess that the couple of their members were recognized by some white supremacists in the area. Uh, I've heard kind of conflicting stories if it just this just happened to occur. There was a coincidence. These fascists were walking by and saw them. So from the video I saw, from what I understand, um, the fascists uh, were walking by and recognized them or or at least recognized, you know, their pins or something. And they started an argument. And there was a video on Twitter of just a few seconds of that argument, maybe 30 seconds or so. And it was very heated. Uh, the white supremacists were being very aggressive with their body language while the DSA people were all pretty much sitting in their chairs it was an uh, it was an outside uh sort of patio and then uh apparently from the dsa people's reports the white supremacists walked off and then one of them walked back a minute later held up a cylinder and uh 
and pepper sprayed several of the people on the patio. One of the DSA members got it full blast, as did the owner of the establishment. Um, A few other people got it on their hands and clothing, but thankfully didn't get it in their eyes. But uh, yeah, and then uh, the uh, white supremacists walked off, the police were called, uh, and the police didn't arrest anybody. They didn't detain anybody. They didn't search anybody. In fact, they had a nice little chat with their uh, buddies, the the, uh, white supremacists. They had a nice little chat, uh, sort of chuckled, laughed it up a bit, and then uh, left. And that was the end of that. Yes, uh, absolutely outrageous situation that it's it's incredible to me that this this sort of thing can even happen. Uh, It's just so blatant as it is that this... It's a truly uh, insane situation when you have the literal owner of this restaurant standing there who has been pepper sprayed telling the police, I'm the owner of this place. These people just, uh, you can tell, I haven't been around pepper spray. It's it's not the sort of thing that you just walk into a scene that's been pepper sprayed and you're like, oh, I, I can't tell anything's happened. I mean, it's... Uh, it's it's pretty strong. That's kind of the whole point of it, and certainly these and it police that orange residue on people's on people's clothes. It's very obvious. Uh, absolutely, extremely obvious. And I mean, these police—that's a condition of employment for most police departments that you got to get sprayed yourself as part of their training. And so these these there is no excuse here. There is no excuse of ignorance or anything. The police were fully aware of what had happened. Uh, completely, completely aware of what had happened. They were completely aware that, uh, I mean, this is an obvious situation where there's, there's no doubt CCTV footage to be had. There's, there's clear, there's bystanders who can say, here these people were sitting and unprovoked. These guys come up and start pepper spraying and, uh, and there is not even any searching that the police said there was no grounds for a search. And these are the people who will search your car because you you had a brake light out supposedly i mean, it's it's almost a meme how easy it is for the police to search you and they're they're saying there's no probable cause for a search when people have been assaulted because that's exactly what this is this is assault and battery I mean, the pepper spray is no joke of a weapon. Pepper spray can, if it's used improperly, can cause severe damage, can really hurt somebody, especially if they have respiratory problems to begin with. And it's just, it's an absolute outrage as to how this could happen. And apparently the restaurant owner, uh, I don't remember if they have a friend who's a lawyer or themselves, they have a legal background, but I know they've said that they they have a legal expert who can help them with this and i suspect that somebody's going to see a pretty huge settlement check from the city in the near future but still we, that's that's no cause to celebrate it's this is absolutely outrageous that this can even happen in the first place definitely and well you know what they say all cats are beautiful 
But in the aftermath of this incident, it sort of demonstrated how ready and willing the right wing is to attack even the most mildest forms of leftist organizing. I think it's really spooked a lot of people on the left. I believe we've heard from here at the Socialist Rifle Association, I believe we've heard from a number of DSA chapters who are looking for advice for self-defense, even if it's not necessarily firearm related. But uh, people are starting to get concerned um, just with this incident, with the uh, growing threat of the Proud Boys, with the members of the rise above movement ram here in southern california where four of them were recently arrested over a year later for their actions in charlottesville um committing assault and battery on dozens of people including a uh, a frocked priest um and not being arrested despite doing it in front of police officers multiple times the police will not protect you and unfortunately that's why we have to be around and uh if uh If any leftist or if any DSA member, any DSA chapter is interested in learning in ways that they can defend themselves, whether it be with firearms or whether it be through um, non-lethal self-defense or, you know, even just simple operational security, please reach out to the Socialist Rifle Association and we'll do what we can. We'll get our local chapters in touch with you and we'll talk to you about what you can do to make your organizing safer and more secure against this sort of harassment and attack. Absolutely. Absolutely. Reach out to, if you have a SRA chapter in your area, definitely reach out to them. We don't want to use this as an opportunity to say, oh, come join us. It would be nice if, if you want to participate in the organization like that and you want to have access to the programs we're getting running up to speed now as to these things. But uh, even so, I mean, a lot of people here at the local Wichita DSA aren't members, but I'm st- we're still willing to talk to them and have them attend meetings and uh, participate in trainings. This is something that leftists in general need, and it's not something we really want to put behind a paywall unless, you know, it's actually incurring expenses on our part. And if for anyone who wants to just do some basic reading, there is actually a chemicals guide on the SRA's website under the education tab. If you go to socialistra.org and go under education, there is a chemicals guide available. And, you know, some people will look at that and say, why would you ever need it if you're not planning to do something illegal? If you're not planning to be a rioter, then why would you ever need that? Well, it's exactly a situation like this. Why are you needing it? It's exactly why in that guide it says for for unscrupulous individuals. Uh, and that's exactly what this is. It's fascists who are coming and just are offended by even the smallest amount of leftist organizing and will react violently to suppress it. And that's exactly why you should be aware of what these chemicals are and what you can do to counteract them. Definitely. Our guide covers specifically OC spray, which is the police version of pepper spray. And uh, it's basically the same thing as uh, civilian pepper spray, but maybe a bit stronger. And it also covers CS gas, which is the most common form of tear gas. So that's a very good resource if you're doing any sort of uh, protest action, or if you're worried about getting pepper sprayed by some random fash, please go to our website and check that guide out. It's really good information. Well, we'll go ahead and transition into, I guess, the gun part of the show. 
that we have some news that has come out of Parkland, Florida. So remember, Parkland, Florida is where the Parkland shootings happened. Very tragic situation. And the community is still dealing with its aftermath. Unfortunately, it seems to be dealing with its aftermath in some questionable ways that the Fort Waddledale gun show has found itself banned in Parkland. That for, I guess, several years now, the gun show has rented a public stadium or a conference area that the city rents out to uh, events such as this. Uh, this year, they had their contract denied with the city. The city is refusing to rent the space to the gun show anymore on grounds of uh, the, the city doesn't want guns or things associated with guns in its city anymore, I guess. So the gun show, has, the, the city and the gun show quibbled back and forth for a while through frets around, and now the gun show is making it official by suing the city, stating that its First Amendment's rights are being infringed upon, that this is a public space, and that the city has no right to deny them uh, a, the ability to pay rent and occupy that space uh, just because they are in the business of selling guns. That's an interesting case. Um, first off, I mean, I think it's probably illegal for them to deny them this contract uh, and not a good idea. But on the other hand, I sort of get the point, even though I'm pro-gun, if there was a major shooting in my town, I would not be opposed if people didn't want a gun show around, at least for a little while. You know, I think maybe the organizers of this event, you know, knowing that this likely would be an issue, probably could have booked a space in a nearby town or, you know, had a more limited, uh, had a more, uh, had a more limited um, sort of uh, array of vendors. And uh, certainly, we know that this event, if it does happen, is simply going to be full of right-wing trolls. Uh, there's going to be people selling merch directly referencing this, unless, the, unless this uh, gun show organization makes a point of censoring that sort of content. There are going to be people deliberately trying to, quote, trigger the libs, deliberately trying to get a rise out of people, and it's going to be a probably a huge disruption to the community. So I think that in a moral sense, uh, I don't know if it's right for the city to block this contract and deny them this space, but I think the gun show should maybe have been held somewhere else anyway without it having to get to this point. It's... Uh, it just doesn't seem like a good idea in the current political climate. Nothing good will come of it. I don't even expect that they would uh, do all that much business necessarily. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I feel that you know it's it's not the greatest on the city's part to be denying them this. Certainly, I feel like that's one of those things that it, it starts there and then it kind of spirals outward. At the same time, yeah, in good taste, this is probably something that the gun show maybe should have delayed a little while longer. But then we have the question of how long is long enough? Um, and of course, some liberals would say never is long enough, that it's that it should never be back. Uh, and certainly many residents in Parkland feel that way, that they just want this completely removed from the community. And that's part of why this is happening, that the city officials denied the permit and the rent space to the show at the same time yes that's there would definitely be trolls there that just just want to get a rise out of people and that would not be 
that would not be good for anyone. So we'll we'll see how it goes. I'm sure this gun show is will find new places to rent out and new places to hold its events. Yeah, I do think they have a good legal case. I do think unless it's unless they can claim sort of some sort of zoning or local, you know, uh, regulation, it's probably pretty likely that this will get to a lower circuit federal court and immediately uh, just be decided in favor of the gun show. I wouldn't expect this to get too far into the court system. So, uh, yeah, I guess uh, I guess. This fight was started, whoever you want to assign the blame to, and it's going to go to the logical conclusion. So we'll we'll see what happens in a few months. That we will. Well, we can talk about also a bit more serious of a problem than a gun show having issues getting a building to operate in. That uh, some news has come up again about the gun smuggling problem that America has. So for those who are unaware... Uh, I believe it's the ATF uh, estimates that over 200,000 guns are purchased in America every year with the intent of crossing the border and going into Central and South America, uh, Mexico, and places along the... Uh, shit. Purchased with the intention of going into Mexico and Central and South America and to the various countries that uh, are not experiencing good times right now we'll go ahead and say that uh, places like honduras and nicaragua that have been plagued with systematic uh, violence often caused by you know frequent interventions from outside countries particularly their large neighbor to the north um these these countries just are absolutely plagued with violence there's some of the worst violence in the world is found in central america especially from the drug cartels that uh, purchase these weapons and distribute them to lower level members in the cartels that do petty crime and violence to get by. Um, and it, it is a serious problem that these weapons sell for huge amounts of money that a, a gun that can be purchased here in America for a thousand dollars, a new Colt AR or something like that, uh, fresh off the assembly line can be sold for four or five thousand dollars past the border and of course these drug cartels with the business that they are in are flush with cash and can afford that sort of thing um probably also not helped by the fast and furious program which was a program operated under president obama wherein we intentionally sold guns to criminals and drug cartels in the hopes that we could trace those guns back to the uh criminal organizations that use them and of course this that sure worked out well yeah that kind of blew up in their faces when two border agents were shot dead with the very guns that uh the i I forget which agency was i think it was the atf that sold the guns in the first place two of the guns that the atf sold to the drug cartels ended up being used against border agents so that that turned out not great for them I think it's sort of worth discussing the current state of the uh, cartels in Mexico, Um, not necessarily in terms of which cartel or which family is on top at the moment, but more in terms of the structure of these sorts of organizations. Um, The hold that the Mexican government has on its country is rather tenuous. Uh, Around the um, 
around the federal districts, Mexico City, and around the sort of central plateau, you know, up as far north as, say, Aguas Calientes, um, and maybe a bit further north, the Mexican government keeps a pretty firm grip on things. They're, the police there are relatively loyal. The military uh, can be deployed to any trouble spots. But outside of that core area, uh, the Mexican government's grasp is often pretty weak. Uh, obviously, there's the uh, Chiapas region, which has been in revolution uh, by the uh, by the Zapatistas, Ejercito Zapatista de Liberación something. <laughs> um, the uh, Zapatistas have been uh, having an indigenous uh, revolutionary region in southern Mexico for quite some time. The rule of law in the state of Oaxaca is quite weak. And then in the far north, along the coasts and in the Yucatan Peninsula, the cartels hold a significant amount of power. Just recently in Acapulco, Mexico, uh, in the southeast, the uh, entire municipal police department of Acapulco was forcibly disarmed by the Mexican army. They confiscated all of their weapons, including sidearms, because the police had been so thoroughly infiltrated by the local cartel that they were essentially an official part of the cartel organization, and the entire department is now under military investigation. The police in Mexico are very often corrupted, paid off, by the cartels or integrated into the cartels themselves. Often uh, police officers' families will be abducted by the cartel and they will be blackmailed into committing crimes on the cartel's behalf or be blackmailed into uh, working for the cartel and uh, with sort of a carrot and stick sort of situation, you know, join the cartel and we'll reward you, resist and we'll kill your family sort of deal. The Mexico is a very very rough place to live. Um, But because of this breakdown of law and order, this complete lack of rule of law, many parts of Mexico have um, recently sprung up with groups that they call uh, autodefensas, self-defense groups. And these are essentially local militias of armed men that drive around and will engage in open gunfights with the cartels to drive them out of their towns, to drive them out of their, uh, to drive them out of their fields, to sort of try to assert a form of local control and local rule, which may nominally be part of the, you know, may nom- nominally be under the jurisdiction of the Mexican government, but is actually under the control of the local militia, which might sound great from a leftist perspective, except that. These are very often, very often not leftist people who engage in these, who are, who are members of these alta defensas. Um, several of these groups have turned into cartels themselves. Some of them have joined rival cartels. Cartels will supply and arm and train alta defensas in rival territories to disrupt their organizations. And um, part of the increase in the sale of firearms to uh, Mexico has been weapons that are being supplied to out the defenses, either um, them purchasing them from coyotes crossing the border, or them being supplied by cartels who are seeking to undermine their rivals. And so that's that's sort of a major issue. There's also been a flare-up in the endless, endless fighting in Nicaragua. And of course, the situation in Venezuela is quite precarious at the moment as well. So I would not be surprised if some American guns are making their way down there. But it's a really, it's a really ugly situation, especially in northern and southeastern Mexico and throughout Central America. It's, uh, 
it's a problem. Yeah, it's it's one of those situations that I I struggle to find good answers for. And I, this is something we have to remember. Drug cartels are, at the end of the day, another form of business. And I think that's the problem that people often treat them like they're not like they are. And that's why I kind of like the book Nocronomics, that it's it's a really listening listening to it i have the audiobook version and listening to how the economies of this work uh, from the production to the uh, eventual end distributors and all the steps in between it's it's a really fascinating thing but it it shows that this is uh, it is essentially a corporation that does not care for the rule of law in the same way that other corporations that act in a legal, legitimate way might. Um, not to say that corporations don't break the law all the time. They do. Uh, but when, you're, when your main product that you sell is illegal and simply admitting to owning it will put you in jail, it sort of makes it difficult to litigate disagreements with your competitors. And when you can't, when you can't uh, settle agreements in a court of law, you start to settle them with guns. And that's that's really all a cartel is. It's an illegal company with a lot of guns. Exactly. And uh, this is why, uh, as America moves towards uh, marijuana legalization, uh, this has cut into the cartel's bottom line that the biggest buyer of drugs this side of the planet is America. Um, you don't really have much of a good time selling drugs in poor countries. Uh, people don't have the money, nor do they have the ning. Drugs are very often a rich man's game. Um, of course, it, it affects impoverished communities uh, quite worse because the impoverished communities don't have the support systems necessary to deal with these drug problems. But at the same time, um, of course, a, a the the poor in America are very different from the poor in Honduras. Um, so the poor in America have a lot more disposable income to put towards drugs than poor people in Mexico or Nicaragua. And uh, although weed, uh, the trade of uh, marijuana between Mexico and America has decreased significantly, no one wants to buy that crappy, those crappy bricks of Mexican weed that's dried out and full of seeds. So I've heard. Um, Although the trade of marijuana has declined, apparently the trade and the flow of cocaine crossing the border has increased in recent years. And uh, I can certainly tell you from uh, various parties that I've been to in LA that there are quite a lot of people in this country doing blow at the moment. And uh, yeah, that's uh, apparently they've uh, the prices are lower than they were back in the 80s. And uh, yeah, the uh, it sounds like the cocaine uh, sort of trade is uh, kicking back into high gear. And unfortunately, not to good results. That I mean, of course, cocaine is a very valuable drug, very easy to pack and ship, and that only further encourages uh, purchasing guns to defend the product and purchasing guns to take the product. It, it only further breeds the systemic violence that is now readily found in these countries and it's it's something that through destabilization the, there is always a government that seems to rise that um that there is always something to keep the order 
And so if you're, if your central quote unquote legitimate government is stabilized by, say, a powerful neighbor sending its troops in and disrupting your government, um, then, then, then other governments will take its place. And we hope that, you know, it, it, if we, a people's government can fill that void, but so often than not, it's thuggish brutes that come in and make their criminal will imposed on the people. So, not a fun situation. After after that dark story, we'll transition to something a little, little more lighthearted. So, anyone who follows me on Twitter will will have seen this coming, maybe. I, I, I put it out there that this this might be a story we talked about, and is it necessarily related to leftism? I, I don't know, but it's my podcast, and I want to talk about it, and I think there's a good discussion to be had about it, that I was reading an article recently about uh, screen time for children, and so people may be aware that I, I myself have a child, and so I'm interested in what is best for my child, and I was reading an article on CNN about how screen time might actually not be that bad. So, of course, the the cliche has been that, you know, TV is bad for you. Why are you watching TV all the time? Uh, TV rots your brain, whatever. And apparently science is now saying maybe not. And this is one of those things it's really hard to control for as to how these things, uh, of course, TV usage goes up in poor communities. So when you're testing the results of a child, how do you make sure that that's being reflected accurately? Um, but uh, this study is interesting because it does take some of that into account and it takes some other arguments into account about uh, the socialization aspect of watching TV, watching shows that uh, apparently children actually do better with their classmates when they have a bonding experience such as TV to relate to. Definitely. And there's been a few studies back and forth, and uh, some a, a great many of those studies have said that, you know, screen time, watching television or playing with phones is bad for children. But, and then obviously this one contradicts that. So I sort of have to wonder, what are the metrics that they use to determine whether or not something is good? And is it really measuring, you know, an objective harm or benefit to the child? Or is it simply measuring changes in the traits that we consider valuable in a child? And uh, whether those necessarily correlate to a healthier individual human being? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that you know, an increase in creativity as much as people like to claim that they're in favor of, you know, more creative uh, individuals. Uh, it, it comes down to the fact that being a creator in society is, is a very limited role and oftentimes mocked because it, it isn't a well-paying career. It's very much a rock star economy that you have a lot of people who don't ever make it and live in poverty. And then you have just a couple individuals that, you know, make it big. And as such, people mock that and say, why don't you go get a real job? And, you know, one can argue about the benefits of a human brain expressing their creativity all day long versus somebody sitting in an office doing a real job, but also uh boring themselves to death sometimes literally 
Definitely. We sort of have to question what we value more. Do we value economic productivity or do we uh, value a person's you know, internal, uh, internal life and their, uh, internal esteem. I know which way I lean on that, but, uh, I do think it's worth asking the question, um, you know, what do we want to encourage more of and how does television interact with that? Definitely. I also find it, uh, the social aspect of that interesting that the study was saying that there's a correlation to people, uh, children being able to, you know, better socialize with their friends because they know, uh, similar stories and whatever the shows they see on TV. And so they're able at a young age to better relate to their fellow classmates. And it's interesting then that for a child that maybe isn't interested in this, just naturally does not, is not interested in television shows, uh, how that relates to socialization that, that, that these creative shows have become so prevalent in our society that it's almost becomes a requirement to participate in society uh, to have watched these shows. I definitely felt locked out for a while back uh, when Lost was on the air and I didn't care about it. So it made, uh, made some conversations extremely boring to listen to. <laughs> yeah, I can never get into Lost. It, it just, it lost me. See what I did there? Ah, uh, ah, uh, oh no. The, the best. This is, this is the Alex Yimba pun hour. And that's all it's ever going to be. So moving right along from that, we will transition into kind of the final story of the night. But before we do, dear listener, I have I have a message for you. Um, I don't do sponsorships, as people are aware. Nobody wants to sponsor me anyways. So in the meantime, the show is brought to you by listeners like you and charitable contributions from the George Soros Foundation. This show is made very possible by those Soros bucks. But unfortunately, the Soros checks keep bouncing my bank, but does not want to accept the Soros checks. Perhaps George Soros has bankrupted himself, supporting all these millions and millions of Hillary Clinton voters and leftists and Antifa super soldiers. I mean, it's a very expensive endeavor financing this much. So maybe he just doesn't have the money anymore because those checks just, they, they don't, they don't cash. The bank won't let me cash them anymore. So in the meantime, I must rely on contributions from listeners like you that you can go to patreon.com slash socialist RA podcast. And if you feel so inclined, you can toss me $5 a month to continue creating these episodes. Um, it, it, it is very appreciated and I, I hate shilling myself on air, but alas, this is my chosen profession. So, you know, I probably shouldn't complain too much about getting paid to talk into a microphone at night once a week so but that is actually a stretch goal if i ever get there i think it's like a thousand or two thousand dollars i have it set out that i'll start doing two episodes a week so if you want to have this twice a week with just even more relevant news stories then uh definitely can start chipping in to to get to that point i'm gonna start sending all of my rent money to you instead of to scott uh yes that, that maybe maybe if if i can take your rent money i can pay my rent that Scott charges me so much, so much, but we cannot... That's what communism is all about. It is. But let us not speak ill of glorious leader Scott and his revolutionary works on landlordism. And for people who don't get the meme, because lest I invoke Poe's law here and somebody doesn't get the joke, it, it's a joke. 
somebody tried saying Scott was a landlord, and it's just so silly. It's just the silliest thing ever, and we now make jokes about it because it's silly, and people should feel silly if they actually believe that. Uh, don't believe everything you hear on the internet, people. Do your research. Do, 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 I can't. <laughs> Leave that in. Leave that in. Do your due diligence and don't believe everything you read on Facebook. Yes. Or in the news, for that matter. And if you can hear that in the background, that's my cats fighting for dominance, apparently. So, yes. The, don't just read the headlines, people. Read the article and then read another article. Don't even trust me. Go read articles about this. I put it in the show notes. Do your research. Research is important. Research is something we can all do. And that that's your now-you-know moment. Anyways, frugal billionaires and millionaires and probably soon trillionaires because uh, compound interest says that we're supposed to have the first trillionaire in like a couple decades, if that. But Jeff Bezos is already well on his way to being a trillionaire. It's it's probably going to happen sooner than later. Um, this, This begins a discussion about Jeff Bezos and Amazon. But let us discuss this article discussing frugal billionaires and how... Uh, Bill Gates wears a $10 watch. Um, this is just a silly concept that, that there's a frugal billionaire and it, it serves as a shame upon the working class is what it ultimately does. It serves only to shame the working class that when the, when a working class individual goes out and treats themselves to something, uh, there, there's some, there's some arrogant person standing around the corner to say, aha, you're poor. And you just purchased the brand name hot dogs instead of the generic name hot dogs. We know that the generic name hot dogs have little pieces of bone in them. But because you bought the brand name hot dogs, you are not appreciative of your economic status. And look here, Bill Gates is walking down the street right now. And what do you see on his wrist? He's got a $10 watch on his wrist. And if a man with billions of dollars can be frugal enough to buy a $10 watch when he could buy so much more, then why are you buying the brand name hot dogs? And I, I, I harp on that because I've actually seen this in stores before. People harp on this. It's it's stupid. You know, if uh, if wearing a $10 watch make you a billionaire, well, I don't wear any watch. I should be a trillionaire any day now. When, when, do I hit, when do I get to have my own rocket company? Or your own uh, cryo-freezing company, as some of these people have started to do. And exactly that. The, the rich, yes, the rich spend their money differently. There is no argument about this. The rich don't spend their money on the same thing poor people spend their money on because the rich don't need to. The things poor people spend their money on, things that working class individuals spend their money on, uh, is often to obtain some satisfaction from their abysmal jobs, making uh, even even now that Amazon has raised their wages to $15 an hour, or they will soon, it'll be taking effect, I believe, in November, and it doesn't apply to everyone, which we'll get to here in a second. Um, even at $15 an hour, that's about $32,000 a year. If you have a family, uh, if you are like me and have a, a family to support, that's still just barely getting by. And so any... Any extra spending is a moment of satisfaction of obtaining some joy in your life of getting some kind of material feedback. And 
uh, and for these people to sit there and say, well, but these, these billionaires, they, they're frugal. And you know what? That's why they're billionaires, that they, they spend their money wisely. Well, guess what? Jeff Bezos has a spaceship company. That's, I mean, spaceships are cool. I like space. I think space is the final frontier and we need to get out to space and start colonizing other planets. But uh, he's, he's not doing it for the betterment of mankind. He's doing it because him and his rich buddies want to go to space and they have the money to go to space. So meanwhile, we're stuck on the hell world. And so even as this planet burns to the ground, the, 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 the rich are going to get to hop in their spaceship and fly away and then die on Mars when they realize they don't have the basic survival skills. If you think surviving the apocalypse is going to be hard, try surviving on a planet hostile to human life. But you know, it's it's the, the rich spend their money on plenty of stupid things. We mentioned last episode Peter Thiel. He runs a vampire business. They, they, they leech the blood from literal youths and it's... You can't tell me that that's being frugal, buying the blood of a teenager. That's that's just outright insanity. That's not that's not frugality. Uh, he probably bought the ten dollar watch just for the novelty of paying for something with cash, <laughs> instead of just having it magically fall into his lap. Anyways, fifteen dollars an hour is the rallying cry for many minimum wage advocates in America. Um. And Amazon recently bucked to public pressure that Bernie Sanders was pushing for a bill in Congress that would uh, penalize companies for exploiting the public welfare system to underpay their employees. And then, you know, Amazon's facing a unionization effort within its warehouses and within Whole Foods, which is a company it recently purchased. Um, so it's going to expand. All It's $15 an hour. For all full-time, part-time, seasonal, and temporary laborers, this does not include 1099 contractors, apparently, though, which is very unfortunate. Um, 1099s make up a majority of some departments in Amazon, particularly uh, delivery. So this is a... uh... You know, this is sort of what always happens whenever labor starts to get organized. The bourgeoisie comes in and offers some sort of concession. They, they say, oh, no, uh, we've heard your cries. We've heard your concerns. Here, we've, we've fixed things. Here, you can have $15 an hour. Oh, uh, also, we're cutting your bonus, which Amazon is doing. And also, it doesn't apply to contractors. And uh, also, one thing I think is worth keeping in mind is that the $15 an hour rallying cry for increasing the minimum wage, uh, it's great and all, but the issue is that the dollar is a moving target, and uh, inflation has been ticking upwards for years now, and we're currently sitting around 2%, which doesn't sound like much, but over time it adds up. In 2015, um, you know when Bernie, Bernie Sanders' campaign started, uh, the $15 an hour was, you know, certainly very close to a, to a living wage in many parts of America, maybe not our, you know, most expensive cities like LA and Seattle and San Francisco. Uh, but, you know, it was certainly a good amount. It was a good amount to be paid. In the year 2018, though, in the intervening three odd years, the value of $15 an hour has fallen and is now equivalent to 
uh, I believe it was $13.50 in 2015 money. So this goal of $15 an hour has been devaluing over time. And Jeff Bezos rising to this standard now is, is much less impressive and much less beneficial to the employees if it had been implemented several years ago when $15 an hour was a greater amount of money. And it's sort of, it's sort of I think, part of what we need to, to realize is that um, is that minimum wage needs to be tied to inflation because otherwise it will just devalue over time and become less worthwhile. So even though the $15 an hour, you know, it's a good thing, it's a worthwhile concession, but that's really all it is. And it's nowhere near as generous as people might think at first, because it's just not $15 an hour isn't all that much money. And the fact that Amazon had to raise its wages to $15 an hour, which sort of just tells you how badly they were shortchanging their employees before. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, And people will say, well, why are you so greedy? Why are you so greedy? Why do you want even more money now? You just got this. Can't you be satisfied for one second? And it's like, well, no, because that's still the problem is still the same. People still are going to have trouble uh, surviving on this, especially in higher cost of living states like California, where the cost of living is being driven higher and higher by uh, gentrification and things like that, of where Amazon is perfectly willing to pay high level individuals outrageous sums of money, but uh, won't pay its workers as much as its high-level individuals are. And obviously, there is going to be some pay disparity. Nobody's here saying that uh, that a, a senior software developer that's been doing this uh, professionally for 30 years ought to be making the same as an introductory warehouse worker. But there's a, there's a limit to that, that there's a point where the value of your labor it just is not that much greater than somebody working on the the shop floor and and certainly everyone deserves to have a living wage and a wage that is proportional to how successful the company is and as a syndicalist uh, it's it's my deeply held belief that you, the workers need to have their shares of the profits of the company that doesn't mean that every worker everywhere makes the exact same amount of money but they need to have their share that your you work for your money and you get the value created <laughs> by your work and that that's a very basic leftist principle that people ought to be rewarded for the value of the work and what what happens is exactly the opposite nowadays that uh, wages are driven down by these companies that seek to sap more and more of the value that workers add to the company because that's what's happening. Workers uh, fuel the economy by adding value through their time and efforts, that they have a skill and even unskilled labor is in its own way skilled that you still are doing something to add value to the economy and to the system you're working in. And Amazon can afford to do this. Amazon can completely afford to do this, but this means that somebody isn't going to be able to pay, be paid the ridiculous sums of money that they get. And you see this across society, across the economy, that businesses regularly engage in this practice. 
And of course, somebody's going to come up to me and tell me, oh, but Alex, the, the, these small businesses, their CEOs only make a hundred thousand dollars a year. Are you, are you saying when you say all CEOs are, are awful people and they're making millions of dollars, but here you can see that the CEOs on average don't make that much money. That's like, well, fantastic. Yes. Your, your small mom and pop business or your small local business, their CEO isn't making uh, ungodly amounts of money. Thank you for pointing that out. Can we get back to the point that Jeff Bezos earns by compound interest hundreds of thousands of dollars like every hour that just by the pure math of the situation that Jeff Bezos doesn't have to lift a finger and he's his money is so large that it just makes more money, which in turn makes more money because wealth is accelerationalist, that it the more money you have, the faster you get more money. So, and even beyond just Jeff Bezos' personal fortune, which is an absolute fortune at this point, but is also a lot of funny money. It's a lot of stock valuation and things like that, that of these intangible money valuation concepts that are hard to actually quantify when it comes down to it. Um, the Amazon itself has room to give its workers more raises um and certainly it's uh, as you were saying it's it's inflation inflation keeps happening and somewhere charlie kirk is getting ready to make a meme about how inflation is caused by minimum wage going up which no it's this is a it frustrates me every time i see that minimum wage does not cause inflation it's this stupid idea that you get these memes on Facebook where it's like, oh, if you raise, if you give McDonald's workers $15 an hour, then your burger is going to cost 20 bucks. It's like, no, that burger, the, the, the labor going into that burger that you're eating, that you're consuming, even as you berate the people who make that burger because you apparently want to consume the services of another while telling them that they should get a better job. That you, you, you simultaneously make the reason for this part of the economy to exist. And then you're, you're engaging in it while advocating against it, basically. Uh, first of all, get that in order. And then second of all, labor is not a hundred percent of what's going into that burger. So even if it's, it's just, uh, it's frustrating to me. It's absolutely frustrating. This has been the Angry Syndicalist Hours with your host, Alex Humba. <laughs> It is absolutely frustrating. And, and of course, this is just to avoid unions because Amazon workers are getting fed up with having to pee into bottles to make production quotas. And unions are delving into it. The Teamsters have been looking into it. Even the machinists have been looking into this. Service workers have been looking into this. Uh, Whole Foods has a active union, uh, organizing campaign going into it and uh i guess team lead supervisor and management are now being briefed at whole foods about how to recognize the signs of unionization and report it to corporate so corporate can take care of it and just a lot of union busting tactics going on because why would the workers ever want to band together why would workers ever want to you know negotiate their fair share because you, you could just go to the boss on your own. You can negotiate with the boss. You're, you, you can be self-reliant. That you are an individual and the individual rules in America. 
and you can go into your boss's office and you can tell him, I want my raise and I want it now. Of course, when they fire you, that's going to be really disappointing. Definitely. And uh, speaking of unions, um, so I believe you mentioned earlier something about uh, Teamsters within UPS, the Teamsters union uh, within UPS attempting to pass a deal that is maybe not such a great deal for the workers. Yes, which this is something else that we, we, we should we should talk about for a little bit, that unions are great as a syndicalist. I think unions need to have even more power. And it's I'm a big supporter of the IWW. And I I think we need more and more unions. But as part of this, as part of this, unions must be democratically won. And unions must take care that their leadership does not become corrupt. And a lot of this becomes through uh, institutionalized power structures in the union. And so you can look at how different unions do these things that, for instance, the, uh, oh, I want to say United Electrical Workers. Yes, the United Electrical Radio and Machine, uh, workers. They are America, they are self-proclaimed America's most democratic union. And they, they really hold to that. Um, they elect their stewards, they elect their business agents, they elect their delegates, they, they elect pretty much everyone in that union. And that's that's honestly how it ought to be, that if you're having representation in your union, it needs to be elected. You can't have nepotism get into place and have people start appointing other people into positions where it's you stand the risk of not having your actual the workers actually represented and you run the risk of collusion with management and this is exactly what's happened in the teamsters that the the leadership under their president hoffa is absolutely atrocious he's run into trouble before in the union and it's a lot of colluding with management that these people get their way into these positions and then they start colluding with management and they become as big of a problem as your boss is that now you have to not only deal with your boss but you have to deal with the union as well and the the way to fix this is that you can have the union set up in a democratic fashion where you can get rid of these people when they start causing those troubles and you can delegate power uh at many different levels so that no one person or one group has the the authority over everything. Um, and in this case, uh, the negotiating team of the Teamsters has allowed for UPS to negotiate a two-tier system to where they'll have two tiers of drivers. They, they aren't negotiating good starting wages. Their starting wages are still $13 an hour, which is a real problem when you're trying to organize new workplaces into your union how can you convince them of it when uh, if you want to go organize amazon how can you convince them that you're a good deal for the workers when you can't even negotiate wages higher than what amazon's offering now so and for a company like ups ups is a hugely profitable company they turned three billion in profits last year they are an extremely successful company, and those profits can and should be passed down to the workers. Instead, the team still leadership is being extremely ineffectual, and they need replaced. 
is what needs to happen. Absolutely. Um, I don't really have any other comments. You sort of did a number on that topic. I'll also say on that, there is unfortunately not much planning going on that it looks like the Teamsters, the, the, the rank and file are going to turn this deal down, that they're going to have a vote uh, member wide on it and probably going to turn the contract down. But what's going to come after that? Nobody can really say there's not a good game plan for what's going to happen, that if they go on strike, uh, there's not a good game plan for what do we negotiate next. And it does take strong leadership. It takes somebody coming in from the rank and file and being able to rise up and provide a clear path forward and what needs to be negotiated from management and unfortunately that sort of lack of um that sort of lack of planning is often a negotiating tactic in of itself by not planning for an alternative outcome by not planning for a no vote there's sort of it's almost a threat to the membership vote our way or we will throw the organization into chaos uh and i think it's sort of similar to what happened with brexit in the uk where it was sort of you know uh if you go through with this brexit deal oh who knows what's going to happen no one has any idea no one has any plan so definitely vote against it and then when it passed uh leadership is caught with its pants down and doesn't know what they're doing so that might be the outcome with uh that might be the outcome with the teamsters union or maybe they do have a plan and they're just not talking about it but i definitely do think that if if the uh, members of the teamsters union if ups employees want to get a uh, better deal out of this it's going to have to come from the rank and file it's going to have to come from bottom-up organizing it's there's going to have to likely be wildcat strikes there's going to have to be confrontations with union and company leadership in order to make progress on wages and other issues because it's pretty clear that the leadership of the teamsters union is not willing to go to bat for their members which is a real shame and that's yeah you know do it the iww style okay do a uh <laughs> You know, it's it's not, it's not always the ideal structure, but I think a lot more workplaces need to try it. Organize from the bottom up, democratic control, industrial union within your workplace, within your company, so that you don't have this larger national leadership um, drawing from multiple places across the country that tends to centralize power. Do it, do it the democratic way and avoid this sort of union corruption that you get with the Teamsters because they are not doing their job. Absolutely. The, the IWW method is really, it's a, it's a good, good example to look at and it's a good way to run these things. I don't agree with everything the IWW does. I don't really like the term limits they put in. I think that's a bit restrictive on organizing, but I, I do like what they do and I'm a big, big supporter of the IWW. So, oh, I think that's a good note as any to end the episode on. So I hope everyone has enjoyed the episode it certainly seems like people continue to listen to the podcast for one reason or another certainly people got a little upset when i had that hiatus and there were no new episodes out so i appreciate that i do if you go missing again uh we're gonna have to rely on sky high to keep us entertained in the meantime oh that's that's uh don't worry that's that's already in the works i've already well, we were recording this, I made some calls to the investors, and I think I already have a business plan, and we're going to go public already in the initial phase for 420 a stock. Fantastic. 
So until we take that business venture online and become filthy capitalists ourselves, listeners, remember to seize the means of production. Solidarity forever. 